The following program is brought to you by We Are Many. To learn more about this program or to find others like it, check out wearemany.org. This, welcome to the uh, discussion on why class matters. And uh, with uh, speaker Jason uh, Janowitz, who is going to be replacing uh, Kirsten Roberts, who was originally supposed to give this talk. Um, uh, Jason is the author of uh, an article in one of uh, this ISR review. Uh, he wrote the article of the Mankno myth, which is uh, on anarchists in the Russian Revolution. And uh, so you all know the, how the drill works. He's going to give a presentation, then afterwards we're going to have a discussion. I'll call on people's hands and everything. And uh, before we get started, I'll just like to make a couple announcements. Um, there will be a meet and greet for conference attendees from the Chicago area at the pool at 5.30 p.m. We will, uh, there will be pizza for $5. Um, also, don't forget to stop by the Haymarket Room, uh, where we have seven new titles, including Sherry Wolf's Sexuality and Socialism. We will have a 20% discount on Haymarket titles through the end of the conference. And tonight at 6.45 p.m., uh, there's going to be a debut of Workers' Republic, which is a documentary on Republic windows and doors struggle. Uh, this is going to be at the Grand Ballroom. And I guess with that, I'll go ahead and give it to uh, Jason. Awesome. Okay, uh, that is true. I'm not Kirsten. Uh, she got sick, so I will be playing her part, uh, hopefully uh, somewhat as well as she would have. Uh, I just want to start. There are competing theories for how to understand uh, society and where change comes from. There are religious theories. You know, it's just God's will, or it's people battling over what they think God's will is. Uh, there are a lot of simplistic reductionist theories. There, you know, the kind of the blank that changed the world theories. There's, I mean, there's the great man, ver white man version of these: George Washington, Winston Churchill, who, who, whomever. There's also the book version. People may have seen this in Barnes and Noble. Um, I did a search on Amazon uh, before the talk for the phrase "change the world," uh, and the number of books that come up are kind of crazy. Cod, the fish that changed the world. A hundred photographs that changed the world from Life Magazine. Uh, five equations that changed the world. Twelve diseases that changed the world. The potato, the vegetable that changed the world. Um, there's even DVDs. Nature, dogs that changed the world. And how William Shatner changed the world. Yeah. By William Shatner. Uh, there's also anti-theories. Uh, you know, history is just one thing after another and nobody can hope to understand it, so just give it all up. And there's a lot of other theories about everything. Uh, Marxism is different than all of those in that I think it shows us how to understand the world, not as a series of simple one-offs or big ideas, but instead that change comes as the result of humans interacting with the material world, a process that is driven by various conflicts or contradictions um, and that we run into during that process. The most significant of those conflicts in today's society is class. Uh, this doesn't mean it's the only division or the only conflict in society or the only issue worth caring about. Women's oppression, racial oppression, LGBT oppression, national oppression, these are all real phenomena that devastate people's lives. Um, and we absolutely have to struggle against them. But if we want to do so most effectively, um, we, we need to understand their origins and how we can ultimately end them. Um, and for that, you need a class analysis. Uh, this talk is going to be about why and how that is uh, and what it means for those of us who want to change things. Uh, a, a quick overview, I'm going to go through what is class and what does it mean under capitalism. Then I'm going to talk about what's special about the working class and then why or how or does class matter in the U.S. today, which is a uh, sometimes controversial topic. So first of all, what is class? Um, for many on the left, class is commonly thought of in terms of how you dress, 
how you walk, how you talk, where you live, if you make a certain amount of money. Um, for Marxists, we actually see class differently. We see it as an objective relationship to production. I will explain what each of those words means. Um, but let me actually back up. Marx looked at society, uh, why it existed, and the way it changed over time. Um, and he realized that it was possible to understand all the complicated things going on. And he lived in a time where there was massive change, industrial revolution, uh, just an incredible amount of uh, rev real revolutions going on uh, all around him. Uh, and he, 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 helped, he was part of devising a sort of an analytic framework for understanding that. And it starts from the insight that humans first form societies to meet their basic needs. That is, before you can have philosophy, you need to have food, you need to have shelter, uh, you need to have love, uh, I guess unless it's a nihilistic philosophy. Um, and for the last 10,000 years or so, uh, a minority of human history, about 8% of human, uh, as long as Homo sapiens have been around, we've had class society. So it's a relatively recent invention or just uh, phenomenon. Um, and this happened once humans were able to produce more than they needed to consume uh, at that moment. In other words, when they could develop agriculture and instead of being hunter-gatherers, start to make, uh, make cities. Um, in order for that to be the case, there's a surplus. There's more uh, left over and so that not everybody has to put effort into feeding or raising, uh, uh, you know, feeding themselves or feeding children um, and, and so on. That there's leisure time or there's other time. And ruling classes arose as a part of that. They, they were initially the group of people who would take care of that surplus. Um, and that soon turned into a phenomenon where they were, you had a small group of people that would live off the labor of the vast majority. That said, class societies have changed quite dramatically over time in what they look like, how they operate, their slave societies, feudal societies. Uh, of course, today we have modern capitalism. Um, so when doing this study, Marx noticed that there were some important elements about modern class society, about capitalism, that were different and uh, potentially uh, uh, set the stage for something uh, for socialism, basically. The first one was that scarcity was now artificial. Um, for the first time in human history, there was enough to go around. It wasn't the case that you were hungry because there wasn't enough food. It, it, capitalism made that possible to, pr to produce enough for everyone. Now, just to put that in perspective, when the cap and this was already the case when the Communist Manifesto was written, but when, that, when the Communist Manifesto was written, uh, there were roughly 1.2 billion people in the world. Um, and if you evenly divided up all of society's output across all those people, that is, you know, a capitalist nightmare, but let's say we did that and we called the amount that we gave to each person on the planet at that time one unit of stuff, and then you did that again today, just to give you a sense of how capitalism has developed in the last 150 years, uh, you divided everything across the over six and a half billion people we have now, um, well, if there had been no increase in productivity, no increase in the ability of society to make stuff, everybody would have a lot less, it'd be about 0.2 units of, of stuff. Um, and if productivity had kept up with population growth, everyone would still have one unit of, of, of stuff. In fact, what's happened, despite an over five times increase in population in the last 150 years, today if you did that same exercise, everybody would have about 22 units of stuff. Um, that is that there's 22 times more stuff today, more productive capacity today than there was 150 years ago. Um, and the Communist Manifesto already made sense 150 years ago. Uh, and in fact, since 1970, output is more than doubled per person. Uh, the upshot of all that is that we do have the productive capacity to feed, clothe, house, educate everyone. The reason that doesn't happen is because there's no profit in it. Um, and the numbers on this are staggering. Uh, I think they're worth talking about to remind ourselves that socialism is not only desperately needed, but it's not a utopian vision. It's not some possible, you know, remote possibility, um, given what we can do as a, as a, as a species today. 
So one third of the world is malnourished, um, and yet we produce enough food to give everyone 3,500 calories a day. Uh, the average adult needs 2,000 to, 20, 2000 to 2,500. Uh, in today's New York Times, they noted that the current financial crisis uh, has pushed the number of people who are chronically hungry, that is, they get less than 1,800 calories a day, to over 1 billion. Uh, and also, in over a billion people have no access to clean water. Two billion have no access to adequate sanitation. Um, but according to the UN, we could fix this for less than $80 billion a year. That's less than the cost of occupying Iraq, uh, let alone Afghanistan. Um, in fact, 1.2 billion people today survive on less than a dollar a day, and it goes, uh, that, that number doubles uh, for $2 a day. Um, and then there's just some facts, there's things that are just almost impossible. Those numbers are staggering. And then you, you add in things like over 8 million children in the world are slaves. Um, and a million people a year are newly enslaved in today's society. 45 million children die of curable diseases, malnutrition or starvation, every year. That means 7,000 children are going to die during this meeting from things that are completely preventable. Um, and the only reason they're going to die is it's not profitable to, to, to save them. Um, in fact, every year there are as many preventable deaths on the planet as people who died in all of World War II, between the battles, the Holocaust, Hiroshima, um, and so on. And World War II lasted for just six years. This happens every year. Um, the reason for that is that all of the wealth that humanity has created is in the hands of just a few people. Uh, the world's 500 or so, the number keeps changing, how many billionaires there are depending on the stock market's fluctuations, but uh, those people have more wealth than around 2 billion people in the world's poorest countries. The poorest 70% of the world's countries have only 10% of the world's wealth. Um, and those figures themselves are stark, but they're also misleading, because within the more developed countries, like the United States, the income is incredibly concentrated. So in this country, one in four households uh, has zero or negative net worth. Uh, one in five children is born into poverty. That figure goes way up if you're black or Latino. Uh, the top 1% of the U.S. has over 40% of the wealth. The bottom 90% has less than 30% of the wealth. Um, and these... And, that's the situation we live in. That, at one level, you could stop there and say, that's why class matters. That'd be a very depressing place to stop, and I'm not going to stop there, because there's, there's some good news amidst all of this. Um, but you do have to say that scarcity today is completely artificial, even if in the past it was, it was real. In fact, there's a lot of things that are artificial now. Natural disasters are no longer natural. And I'm not talking about global warming, which is its own serious issue, but Katrina was a natural hurricane. Um, However, the results of it were man-made. The destruction, uh, the devastation it had on people's lives were man-made. Famines that happen today happen not because there's crop shortfalls worldwide, but because it's not profitable to feed everybody. Um, and that, in fact, gets into a sick logic that capitalism has, which is abundance is bad. Um, that the system, in previous societies, the systems, a society would go into crisis if there wasn't enough stuff. Like, they, you know, there was crop failure after crop failure and everyone would starve and die. Uh, today's society uh, goes into crisis when there's too much production and things can't be sold at a profit. Um, and of course, when the, boss, when the system does go into crisis, the bosses attack the workers. And we're seeing that right now, every day, in, in the papers, uh, you can see headline after headline about that. Um, but there is a way out of this disaster, and it's not about coming up with a perfect plan or hoping everyone could just see the light. Uh, the fact is, the demise of the system is possible, um, but it can come from only one force, um, and it's a force that the capitalism itself created, which is the working class. Um, and so I want to talk a bit about what the working class is, why, that's, why that is, who, who's in it, and, and so on. 
Um, workers are the only group in society that have the motivation and the means to remake society. Um, and I'll go through what I mean by that. By the motivation, I mean, some level I could just stop and just say, of course we have a motivation to change society. We're getting screwed over every day. You don't have to look that far. Um, it, it's, uh, the system is set up in a kind of brutal way because workers only have one asset, which is their, our labor power. Um, and you have to sell that if you want to stay alive. Um, and the process of selling that is not a fair exchange, in fact, because what you end up producing is worth a lot more than what you get paid. That's, that's what profits are, by definition. In fact, that was one of Marx's key points. He built on some earlier economists of capitalism, um, but that was the notion that labor creates all value and that profits are simply the surplus value that's been created by workers for which they're not compensated, that they just get robbed. The entire system of capitalism is built on robbery. Um, not only does it do that, it makes people miserable at the same time. Uh, there was a meeting in that room, just in the previous session on alienation, um, which, is this, which is what ends up happening. Because one of the things that makes us human is our ability uh, to labor on things. In fact, consciousness and language, we develop them as a, you know, we evolve those as a me mechanism for uh, being able to meet our me needs in a collective way. Under capitalism, however, that process gets warped. Uh, what we produce is owned and disposed of by others. So instead of being able to consciously shape the world around us, uh, we become robots in the service of another. Um, and we're treated as just another commodity by the bosses. As they're doing their calculations, it's like cost of electricity, cost of rent, cost of labor. Um, and that's how they think about the world. And, you know, and as a result, what should be something that's enriching for all of us, that is the work we do in our lives, becomes something that grinds us down. You can think about this in a different way, too, which is that uh, the labor that some people find alienating when, it's a, when they're doing it as a wage for others um, some people do for fun in their spare time for themselves. I mean, I, three examples of this are fixing cars, right? There's lots of people do that for fun. A lot of people hate it because it's, it, it's done under such horrible conditions. A second is growing food. I don't like to garden, but I know a lot of people do. Um, and that's a very different uh, um, experience than doing it, uh, than being a, a migrant work, farm worker uh, picking uh, strawberries. Uh, and the third would be, you know, going fishing. There's a big difference between doing fishing on your own terms uh, and doing it off the coast of Alaska and having your hand ripped off. Um, people aren't just alienated from our own labor, though. We're, we end up getting alienated from each other uh, in the process. And we're taught that it's us against the world. So that, that means you're competing for houses, for jobs. It's white workers against black workers, native born against immigrants, men versus women, um, and so on. Uh, what's incredible about that, too, is as if there's this sort of sense that there somehow isn't enough to go around. Um, now, it is the case, though, that despite these views that the ruling class keeps pushing, capitalism also trains us, at least partially, to defeat the bosses. Um, the conditions of work itself creates the basis for solidarity, for the idea that, we, we, that those that do the work have a common interest. Work itself requires coordination and cooperation in the day-to-day. -day. Um, it trains people to work together, to plan things. Um, uh, you can think about how the experience of how you make a car that requires a tremendous amount of coordination between uh, thousands of workers. Or at a hospital, you have doctors, nurses, and orderlies versus the administrators, the HMOs, the pharmaceutical salespeople, uh, and so on. Um, people's, what that means is that, pe the reason that becomes important, rather, is because people's actual lives are in contradiction with the ideology that we get taught. Um, the idea that there's an American, well, I mean, <laughs> The idea that there used to be that there was an American dream, or, and this idea got crushed last fall, that bosses are somehow smarter than workers, uh, that, 
I mean, it was amazing the sight of these uh, scumbag bankers saying, oh, well, no, we have to be given our bonuses because otherwise we won't have an incentive to come to work. And I'm like, good, don't come to work. You can fucking everything up. But um, uh, in fact, the dynamics of the system itself produce fight back. That massive increase in wealth for, the small, for a small number of people combined with a system that, as we know, goes into crisis regularly and in the process has to exploit and attack workers is very volatile. And, what, and in fact, if the class moves into action to fight back collectively, that can be a system-threatening force. You know, if the bosses don't show up for work, we love that. That's a great day at work if your boss doesn't show up. If we don't show up, for, on the other hand, the bosses face a disaster. Um, when I was a kid, you know, it sucked to be sick on a snow day. Like, that was just the worst kind of combination. Uh, now it sucks to be sick when the boss is on vacation. Like, that's, uh, you're like, it's actually kind of fun to go to work if the boss isn't there. Um, workers, in fact, uh, you, so you have this combination where workers are exploited and have the power to unite and, f and fight back. Um, this has happened before, uh, and it can happen again. Uh, it's, and it's important, I think, sometimes to go through some of this history because right now we see some struggles, but it's not happening on the level or the scale that you would expect uh, or that you would hope for given the, the scale of the attacks. Um, oh, I should say, the working class today uh, is a majority of the world, um, and in the United States it's about 75% of the population. Um, and when those people fight back, it can be transforming for them as well. The experience of taking part in struggle uh, tr can transform uh, the, the, those that do. Um, one example of that uh, is from 1937. Um, there was a uh, sit-down strike, a set of series of sit-down strikes against General Motors. Um, and after their victory, uh, a woman who was involved in the strikes, Janora Dollinger, explained, quote, following the strike, the auto worker became a different human being. The woman that had participated actively became a different type of woman, a different type from any we had ever known anywhere in the labor movement. They carried themselves with a different walk. Their heads were high, and they had confidence in themselves. Conditions also changed inside the plants. The foremen were tiptoeing around, being very careful. The men were so cocky, they'd say to the foreman, you don't like it? And then they'd push the button and shut down the line. It was very pleasurable to think that these men were not afraid of the boss anymore. She continues, the victory of GM workers set off a wave of union organization across this country. This wave grew to encompass the entire auto industry, then steel workers organized, then rubber workers, glass workers, and finally even professional commercial and service workers. They gained confidence after our victory because if we could force the largest industrial giant in the whole world to its knees, then they could win too. This was the realization of the Congress of Industrial Organizations, the CIO. The initial CIO stood for power. You'd see posters in homes and posters on cars proudly proclaiming, I am the CIO. Those letters became almost like, I am the deity down from heaven. Now those are beautiful, inspiring words, uh, despite what GM and the government are doing to workers today uh, at, that, at that company. Um, and they were, it was a story that I know for uh, many of us in Chicago sprang into our minds, or around the country actually, uh, seven months ago when uh, workers at Republic Windows and Doors took over their factory. These were 250 members of uh, UE Local 1110, uh, and they heard they were getting laid off without even getting their legally mandated severance. And they said, you know what, enough. Bank of America was refusing to provide a loan to the, to the company, uh, despite having just been handed $25 billion uh, of our money by the federal government. Um, and this workforce was just too pissed off. And it's important to note that they were overwhelmingly Latino. Most were immigrants at a time when immigrants are under increasing uh, uh, scapegoating and attacks. Um, but they had also all seen the massive May Day protests in Chicago in the last few years. 
um, and around the country. And it turns out they were the wrong workers to mess with. Uh, they kicked out, they'd recently kicked out their mobbed up local a few years ago and they'd brought in UE. And they knew what the auto workers in 1937 knew, which was that their greatest power lay at the point of production, even if the company was trying to completely shut down that production. Um, not only did they take over the factory, but outside the plant, hundreds of other trade unionists and supporters showed up within hours uh, to rally and support. There were even demonstrations around the country in solidarity with these workers, and they ended up winning. The bank and other creditors coughed up $2 million, even though they had no legal obligation to do so. Um, and then some of those workers toured around the country on a resistance and recovery tour to what they called resistance and recovery. Uh, to share their stories and its lessons with other people, uh, which is an important element of how the class's lessons can be generalized and um, develop, how we can develop uh, an increasing level of uh, militancy. There's a, I, you announced it, um, that there's gonna be a screening tonight, a rough cut of a movie about that story. I encourage people to check it out. Um, but that is a taste of what can happen uh, when, when the class moves into action, um, which takes me to the third uh, section of the talk, which is, um, you know, how relevant is this stuff in the United States today? Because uh, there's a number of objections uh, that people often make, two that I want to talk about um, when it comes to applying class theory to the United States um, are one is that the media is simply too powerful in this country uh, for, for this to matter. Sure, things suck, but we can't do anything about it. Um, and the second is that divisions in the class are too great. Um, so I'll talk about those and then I'll conclude. Um, this argument goes, you know, it doesn't matter if workers have a material interest in fighting back. The fact is the ideological hold of the U.S. ruling class is simply too great. Um, they control the media, they control the schools, the workplaces, um, and so on. And obviously, the ruling class does do so. The Marx, in fact, noted that the ruling ideas of society are the ideas of the ruling class, which at one level you would expect. I mean, they're a very small group of people compared to the rest of us. Uh, and the only one of the few things that's allowing them to hold on to power day in and day out is that their ideas are so uh, prevalent. But you also have to say if it was just the uh, case that the ruling class's ideas mattered most, then this country should still be rapidly pro-war, which it's not, and Barack Obama should still be a state senator in Illinois. Um, another example of that is given the tirades against taxes and national health care, we shouldn't have a country where the majority of people would be willing to pay higher taxes for national health care. Um, there is, in fact, more going on than just this ideological weight of the U.S. ruling class. And that is that lived the experience of people's lives, the lived experience is at odds with what we're told. People know that it's not the case that if you just work hard enough, you're gonna get ahead. Um, there's an example of this that I was not taught in school when I was taught about uh, this period, but I think is pretty significant uh, in sort of drawing this out, and that is World War II. Um, and if you think about World War II, this was a time of massive government propaganda and coercion. I don't know if people remember the flags that were everywhere after 9-11, you know, they were on cars, they were on everything but toilet tissue. Uh, World War II had that beat, hands down. Uh, the government essentially controlled the entire economy, half of GDP was military production, and the government set prices for everything else. The leadership of the unions signed a no-strike pledge. The CIO, in fact, announced it would, quote, redouble its energies to promote and plan for ever-increasing production. The Communist Party uh, 
which was uh, you know, a much larger force at the time, uh, was even more militant about output for the war effort. Um, the story, by the way, of what happened to the Communist Party, how that happened, etc., is interesting. It's a different talk. Uh, but the important point is, at this moment, they still led and had a large influence among sections of the working class in this country. Hollywood was churning out pro-war movie after pro-war movie. Radios carried pro-war show after pro-war show. Newspapers were filled with pro-war reporting. City streets and billboards were covered with pro-war propaganda. I mean, children in schools were wrapping up, uh, they were given make work, like wrapping up chewing gum foil wrappers for the metal, uh, supposedly for metal production. These were just thrown out. Um, but in this context, the largest wildcat strike wave in U.S. history took place, despite the existence of a war labor board which was empowered to unilaterally impose contracts. I should say wildcat strikes are those that are not sanctioned by union leadership, uh, but are organized by the rank and file, often in response to immediate threats like a coworker being fired or punished. Much of that strike action was located in, the mil in military production, in that part of the economy. Um, and people on strike were the threat if you went out on strike was that you were going to get drafted. But the level of confidence in organization was so high that that didn't matter. In fact, between Pearl Harbor and VJ Day, there were four, over almost 15,000 strikes involving 6.8 million workers in this country. In 1944 alone, more strikes took place than in any previous year in U.S. history, including the 30s. Um, they averaged 5.6 days each. Um, workers ended up creating extra holidays around Christmas and New Year's, uh, and production would drop to a trickle at that time. Now, why did this happen? It happened because although there was this massive amount of propaganda, workers' lived experience was at odds with that. There was a tremendous pressure of all out for the war effort, and it was exerted everywhere, and it was grueling. Um, now, whether that consciousness explodes into action has a lot to do with confidence, whether you feel the power of solidarity from your coworkers. And workers then felt confident and powerful, partially because of the high levels of employment after years of uh, unemployment, partially because of the preceding years of union activity, and partially because of the very emphasis on the importance of production. Um, and the strike wave actually that followed the end of the war is also amazing, that's another story. The point is that people can counteract the crap they are fed, even during some of the most like intense pro times of propaganda in this country. Uh, a second objection that's raised is that divisions in the class are too great. Now, there's no question that oppression continues to be a brutal force in American life. Um, in fact, it has the dual role under capitalism of inflicting horrors on the oppressed groups uh, and fostering divisions among the 75% of this country who has a material interest in uniting and fighting back. Uh, but the reason all is not lost uh, is that struggle can change people's minds, particularly struggle they take part in. Um, and particularly because uh, the, working, work, the working class as a whole doesn't benefit from oppression. That is, white workers don't benefit from racism, male workers don't benefit from sexism, straight workers don't benefit from gay oppression, native, so-called native-born workers don't benefit from immigrant bashing. These, in fact, these oppressions not only devastate the targets, uh, they also hurt the entire class. The most, you know, I think the biggest Achilles heel, if that's not a mixed metaphor, um, of the U.S. labor movement has been racism. Uh, historically, white workers in the South, for example, have earned less than black workers in the North because legal apartheid there, and that's not to say there isn't racism in the South, in the North, uh, or there wasn't, there is and there was during Jim Crow, but uh, the, the legal apartheid in the South undermined any kind of union movement there. Um, and it's because of that, it's possible to talk about the whole working class uniting to end oppression because there's some kind of built-in interest in that solidarity. It's not, and I want to say that's not just pie-in-the-sky fantasy. Um, one element for that is, you know, you can see that in the fact that uh, 
we have a black president now. Not that we don't have racism, but there's something complex going on there. Uh, and this, the second is there's even examples in history in some of the darkest years of uh, American history. Um, I'll talk about one quickly, which is New Orleans in 1892. And this is the height of Jim Crow apartheid. Radical Reconstruction was defeated. The Klan was on the rise. Lynchings were a commonplace, commonplace throughout the South. In fact, every other day that year, a black man was lynched somewhere in the South, which is just a horrific level of terror. Um, and yet, at that same time, there was a general strike in, the, in New Orleans uh, that united black and white workers, shutting down the city for four days. Um, it started on October 24th, 1892. A couple thousand workers went on strike, mainly over the fight for a 10-hour day. Uh, overtime pay and having union shops everywhere that you couldn't, if it wasn't a union shop, it couldn't exist. Um, the bosses fought back quite brutally. Um, they tried to sign an agreement with just two of the three unions, ignoring the largely black-led uh, Teamsters, saying under no circumstances would they enter into any agreement with uh, N-word. Um, the New Orleans newspapers uh, took part in this. They attempted to whip up racism to break the strike. They ran accounts of, quote, mobs of brutal, neg of brutal Negro strikers beating up all who attempted to interfere with them. But the strikers stood fast in the face of this. The other unions publicly declared that they wouldn't return to work unless the Teamsters also had a contract. The rest of the unions in the city called for a solidarity strike, and 49 unions went out uh, in solidarity. Some of those unions actually had to break their own contracts in order to join the strike. Um, and the leadership of that strike was made up of black and white workers. What ended up happening was the bosses conceded to most of the original work condition demands, that is the 10-hour day, overtime pay, and increased wages. Um, it wasn't a complete victory. There were 5,000 state soldiers and special deputies preparing to invade the city, uh, and the bosses refused the union's principal demand for closed union shops. Um, but the significance of this battle is not, the fact, is not that the workers didn't take on the armed power of the state, but instead that they did unite across color lines to fight the bosses. Um, ultimately, the union movement in New Orleans collapsed, um, although the dock workers managed to have a biracial union for 40 years during the height of Southern apartheid. Um, now, taking on the divisions in the working class is not easy. You absolutely have to organize uh, and do that in a coherent way. And in fact, that's one of the things the ISO is trying to build, is to bring together people to be a wedge in society for, the, for those kinds of ideas. Um, so just to conclude, uh, if you look around today, there is a huge gap between the level and scope of the attacks we see and the size and the strength of the fightbacks. We see glimmers of fightback around uh, gay marriage, for example, or the, the Republic workers. Um, but it's not as much as you, you would expect to see. And you, you, know, you can ask, why is that? Um, because it is the case that a majority of people in this country want to see major change, from health care to higher wages to joining unions. Two-thirds of people want to be in unions today. That's without a strong union movement. Imagine if you actually had unions winning things, um, to seeing the end of the war in Iraq. Uh, but folks aren't currently confident of their ability to change things. And our side does have some big hurdles in front of it. Unions are at near historic lows of organization. Uh, the legacy of McCarthyism has left us with few socialists in the unions and no mass working class political organization. The left is largely moribund, tied to the Democratic Party. But it's also the case in the past that unions didn't exist. Uh, they had to be built. In the early 1930s, for example, you could easily have looked back at the mass uprisings of uh, 1877, which were 60 years in the past, and thought to yourself, that can never happen again. Uh, and then the CIO was born during the fastest rate of unionization in this country's history. In fact, as capitalism has developed, the location of mass class struggle has moved 
from railroad to steel and coal to auto rubber to defense, as capitalism developed and revolutionized production in area after area, organized class struggle has followed it. And I think one of what we've seen in the last few years that, that, that has moved tremendously into the service industry, in particular uh, uh, industries where um, immigrant labor is uh, highly concentrated. Sometimes that happens with a significant delay that the, the way that the, the, the struggle can generalize. But we do know that capitalism has to attack workers. We're seeing it right now every day. Uh, that capitalism goes into these crises that we're experiencing uh, and that there has to be struggle. Now the key question in that is whether those struggles generalize. If they're able to overcome the divisions in the class, uh, if, they're, if they're able to spread to take up political demands and rise to challenge the whole system. Historically, that has depended on the presence of organized socialists in those struggles. I mean, if you look at who led the building of the CIO, it wasn't, uh, oh, I'm failing to think of a suitable insult, but it was socialists that led the CIO. Uh, um, bankers, it wasn't bankers that led the CIO. Uh, <laughs> we need to build socialist organization today that's rooted in the working class, and we need to do that in advance of those kinds of struggles as a precondition for getting rid of capitalism. Organization that can provide connections between the various struggles of today, um, continuity with the struggles of the past, as well as argue for the best way forward in the struggles of tomorrow. The number one problem for the left in this country has been the absence of a revolutionary party that's politically strong enough to link generations of activists together. Each, each new generation has started from scratch having to relearn the same lessons. Someday, I hope, that a talk like this, Why Class Matters, will no longer make any sense at all to anybody that might attend it. The working class will have made a socialist revolution and transformed life. It will seem crazy to people that there could have been a society which, as according to the 2005 UN Human Development Report, a society where a baby born, boy that was born from a family in the top 5% of US income, uh, that that baby would live for 25% longer than a baby born in the, in the bottom 5%. Um, the Russian revolutionary Leon Trotsky wrote an essay on art in 1923, which also explored this new stage in history. Um, and in it, he, and I, this is a somewhat long quote, and I'll, I'll conclude with this, but it gives a flavor of, of what is possible. Um, quote, under socialism, solidarity will be the basis of society. Literature and art will be tuned to a different key. The powerful force of competition, which in bourgeois society has the character of market competition, will not disappear in a socialist society, but will assume a higher and more fertile form. There will be the struggle for one's opinion, for one's project, for one's taste. The liberated passions will be channeled into technique, into construction, which also includes art. Art then will become more general, will mature, will become tempered, and will become the most perfect method of the progressive building of life in every field. All forms of life, such as the cultivation of land, the planning of human habitations, the building of theaters, the methods of socially educating children, the solution of scientific problems, the creation of new styles, will vitally engross all and everybody. People will divide into parties over the question of a gigantic new canal, or the distribution of oases in the Sahara, and such a question will exist over the regulation of the weather and the climate, over a new theater, over chemical hypotheses, over two competing tendencies in music, and over a best system of sports. Such parties will not be poisoned by the greed of class or caste. All will be equally interested in the success of the whole. The struggle will have a purely ideological character. It will have no running after profits. It will have nothing mean, no betrayals, no bribery, none of the things that form the soul of competition in a society divided into classes. But this will in no way hinder the struggle from being absorbing, dramatic, and passionate. Let's have a good discussion.
So, um, like he just said, we're gonna have a discussion now, and as I'm sure you all know, you'll raise your hands, I'll call on you, I'll keep a speaker's list. Um, we want to have the most democratic discussion possible, you know, of comments, disagreements, and questions. But since we are a pretty, you know, small group, I think, you know, I'll be a little lenient on, like, exactly how long I'd say, like, if you get to be rambling, I'll tell you to wrap up or something, but I'm not worried about not being able to get to everyone. Um, oh yeah, and also, whenever you stand up, say your name and where you're from, so we can all get to know each other a little better. Uh, and then eventually I'll come back to Jason for uh, some comments. And uh, also, if you want to learn more about this topic or, you know, it's just really interesting to you, I'd recommend these two great books, uh, The Meaning of Marxism by Paul D'Amato. There's a uh, chapter five in here, which talks specifically about no power greater the working class. And the other one is uh, Subterranean Fire, uh, History of Working Class Radicalism in the United States by Sharon Smith. Um, both great books, pretty much the first two books I read when I joined the ISO really opened my eyes to a lot of different things so highly recommend both of those they're available upstairs and I guess with that I'll start taking hands Supposed to, you could be rich too. 
And then I, I guess another narrative that um, has to do with uh, sort of people's belief that they can um, that they can um, rise above through luck through the lottery. And the, the lottery, just, it feeds into the cycle of poverty so much because you see so many impoverished people, right, that's, that's the poverty. A lot of people, that they don't do quite so, and this is a sociological argument, they don't do so well for themselves or think more of themselves because they think, well, I'm going to hit the jackpot. And I think that that's been more of a, 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 a fetish in the past few years with all this extreme makeover edition and all this shit where the media it puts out this message that you can't you 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 can't do better and then um, there's there's sort of this um, more holistic we care about you thing coming from the sort of the 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 powers that be that control the media. So that you don't think of yourself as, as a community based person. You think of yourself if you just keep working hard enough and don't pay attention, that you're probably going to get lucky one way or another. Look at all these other people that get lucky. So you don't really have to come together and talk amongst yourselves as workers, because the chances are that you're going to get lucky and that things are all going well. Um, and also the narrative that competition is, and this is probably the primary narrative, that competition is um, the, the natural way that things should be. That some people should always that phrase that Marx said, you know, the, the uh, ruling ideas, or the ideas of the ruling class, right, or, yeah. Yeah, um, how that, like, works out in modern day society. Because it seems like, you know, uh, like you provided a lot of examples of how that's not necessarily true, but it does seem like, for the most part, it does seem true in general. And I'm curious as to how that functions, like, outside of, um, like this example of um, Horatio Alger uh, myth, um, I, I'd never heard of that. You were given given this in public schools or something, but um, I mean, I have heard of it, and I can see how that uh, played into it. But and and like the corporate media, for example. But I don't understand how how it works that people can be you know revved up to like, go to war. I mean, what does the media have um, to do with that? Like, why is it that, you know, I guess, I guess a recent study was done that by far, like the two weeks leading up to the war, you know, um, by far they were interviewing people who were pro-war um, and not people who were anti-war. And so my question is like, what did the media have to gain from that, from uh -huh. you know, propagating these ruling ideas? And how does that, I mean, how does it function? Because knowing that seems to be to me, it seems like that's the most important thing to know how to how to counteract that. Uh, my name is Angie from Madison. Um, I will look up the information for you, but 
but there are about five companies in the world that own a whole bunch of things from media to other things. So it's not that they, I mean, the media itself doesn't profit maybe from that, but they're connected to all these same people who control a lot of different things all the time. So it's really them who is profiting, the people you know, who are controlling all of that. So I, I could probably mm -hmm. find that information somewhere. But um, yeah, the, the media is just as controlled by those people as I, I guess everybody else is. Oh, just a quick response. But, uh, that is just really one. That is just one thing. The war was just one example, but I mean, there are so many examples of. I mean, all the wrong ideas. That's what I'm curious about. War is more. That, that's more obvious. What gene and stuff. Are. Okay. I'm gonna have the woman in the front. Yeah, Annie from Chicago. I think the thing about the ruling ideas is that you know. There's a, the question is why do people accept ideas that hurt themselves materially? And I think it's a way of making sense of them. I mean, think about when you aren't fighting back and you're not on strike and you're not part of a social movement, which is how most of us have lived our lives for the last 35 years, right? Um, you feel isolated and you feel like you don't control anything in your environment and you need someone to blame for that situation. and you, it's very easy. It, it's a way of explaining your world to kind of, you know, talk talk crap about, you know, the woman you work with and how, you know, she can't take care of her kids and you know, you, people accept that stuff because it's they feel when they feel weak and disempowered and in, in divided from each other and then there's no social movement that's giving any kind of alternative way for people to feel about themselves and about each other. And I just think that the demise of the women's movement has had such an impact, for example, on how women feel about themselves, about, about abortion rights, about all kinds of things, but also just about how, I mean, one of the things that came out of the women's movement was like, you know, the whole idea of sisterhood is powerful and it sounds kind of 70s and stuff, but it's like you don't call each other bitches, you don't kind of, you know, you don't talk, talk shit about each other, you talk to your kids, your daughters about not feeling fat and focusing on body, you know, there's all these abortion rights are important, birth control is important, all these things that came out of the women's movement changed the culture about how a lot of women thought about themselves and their children and about their families and their role in their families and all this stuff and that, when that movement collapsed, the vacuum of that means the ruling ideas fill are there. They're always there to fill in the space because it's the schools, it's your family, it's all the institutions in our society, it's religious institutions. And so I think it's really about rebuilding those social movements, and that's what impacts people and changes the way that they when they feel a sense of power.
are afraid to of each other. This alienation thing was in the other meeting. So the separation of not participating in a group, not being part of the movement, the media perpetuates all that. So people that are afraid are better consumers, right? They're because they're trying to fill a hole, and so that just feeds into the whole capitalist system, you know. So that was kind of just in response to whether they have to gain, they have a lot to gain. Okay, then I have Lichi. Yeah, um, I think um, the sister over here said something that's important too about, um, you know, the media um, is actually a tool, um, you know, one of the many tools that the state, right, has at its, at its disposal, but obviously we don't. And like you were kind of, you know, answering your own question in a way, um, you know, when the war happened, you saw absolutely no newspaper taking any position different, you know, the, saying like, questioning the war, you know, talking about anything despite the sort of line that was coming from every single mainstream media source. It was um, in the newspapers, it was all over television, and just in, in various sort of different ways, there was a message about Muslims and Arabs, and you know, it became acceptable to say outrageous things mm -hmm. um, uh, about Muslims and Arabs, um, et cetera, and it was, you know, and the important thing to remember too is that um, that climate has also changed somewhat. It's not necessarily a, a fixed um, sort of thing. Um, that actually the media too can can often change again depending on what forces on the ground um, are doing. And the reality is like people aren't like robots um, either. It, it, what Marx also talked about was mixed consciousness. Usually um, human beings have. Um, conflicting sets of ideas, most human beings have conflicting sets of ideas um, in their heads, right? Like on the one hand, they can be saying, God, I hate my boss. And on the other hand, oh, my coworkers the B word. You know what I mean? Um, not understanding that it's, it, the, that one sentiment about the boss is correct, but that the other sentiment about your coworker is actually what keeps you divided from fighting against um, your boss and actually winning something. But again, that's not a fixed thing, and that can change by some of the stuff that Annie was talking about, when there's a movement on the ground that's expression um, of, of an alternative um, to, to what the sort of dominant ideas are, then you can begin to see um, people's um, consciousness changing and that those dominant ideas are actually being challenged. That's something, you know, that's a reason we're trying to build, um, you know, we're in the beginning process and we're trying to build a party that can challenge. That's why we put out a newspaper, we put out publications that say different things. Um, you know, when there was attacks against Arabs and Muslims, we were saying, you know, uh, whatever, <laughs> the, the opposite of, uh, of what the media was putting out there. Okay, then I have uh, Elizabeth and an open speaker to this, this after that. Because of the times in which it was being written, and 
the activities that were going on at the time, we talked about, um, you know, Watts, the uh, riots in, in Watts and in, in in the way that explained it, not as a riot, but it was like people were very angry or what was going on and the civil rights movement and people protesting the war and it looked at it in a favorable way. I think that, yeah, it's, these things are sort of in flux depending on what's on the ground. The whole idea of like um, the ruling ideas, when Marx was talking about the ruling ideas are the ideas of the ruling class, the class that's in power. The ruling class, uh, the, the wealthy, as it is now under capitalism, need, need a whole set of ideas to back up what they have. They need racism, they need sexism, and um, they use everything they can to, 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 to buy uh, people up. And more importantly, they use the idea that you cannot rule. Mm-hmm. That you, you are, you're, you're powerless to rule, you're too stupid to rule, you, you may, they make sure you don't have enough time to think about political ideas and do these things, and so that those set of ideas are, um, are all propagated um, by capitalism. And, and what he, ultimately, what we say is we want the ruling ideas to be, we want a new, a new class to be in power, we want the working class to be in power, and that ideas that, the, the ideas that should be there, you know, against racism, against sexism, would be uh, the ruling ideas. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, um, so I got a, a couple of good answers um, to the questions like this. But um, also, I mean, I just have uh, some difficulties in, uh, I guess I'm not quite ready to accept necessarily the case that, oh, because, you know, five companies run corporate media, essentially, that it kind of solves the problem that I just hope. I mean, take, for example, I mean, uh, what do, what does the media have to gain from propagating racism in general, right? Like, like I mean, my question is then, is it necessarily true that the ruling, it, it's, it's, maybe it's the other way around, that um, not that the ruling class is necessarily causing racist ideas to be propagated through society, but that um, we, you know, we, uh, elect people or um, want to see media that propagates racist ideologies um, because, I don't know. That's actually my question as well. And I think that there's equal amounts of people on both sides that say it's one way, I said it's another because I was in the courses in the community arts department. And I pose the question exactly like that. Do people really want to see this? Do they want to hear another story about Britney Spears or another um, celebrity or another pointless story? Or is that what's available? We don't have a great access. You know, we don't have um, a lot of channels that are very important. We're you know, not just like now comes to mind. But how many choices do we really have in the context
Um, it, it, I think it does relate to alienation and isolation from people, and it controls people, and supposedly it's really entertaining, but I think, I personally think it's a little too much, everything that's on TV. I, you know, everything's supposed to be bigger and better and more exciting, and, and it's like, I'm a little overstimulated, but this is a little too much, you know? Like, some of these new movies that, that you know, um, like the new Jones, the Indiana Jones Sorry. movie, and they had things that jump out at you, you know, in the movie. And I'm like, I don't want to feel like I'm in the movie. I want to watch the movie. You know, it's just a little too much. And I, I really do think it has a lot to do with distracting people from what's really going on in the world. Even. And, and, yeah, I think that's what it is. Yeah. 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 Sometimes it's the case that the State Department writes a press release and sends it to the New York Times and they print it up, and that happens a lot around war and stuff. But it doesn't always have to be that um, direct. So, like, for example, I mean, take what's happening in the early 1980s. You have this giant attack on working class living standards. The ruling class goes on this huge economic attack. And the way, one of the ways they get away with attack attacking working class and taking away the, the gains of the 1960s, particularly the civil rights movement, is by launching a war on drugs and building tons of prisons and cutting social programs and everything that Reaganism was a part of, right? So they're suddenly the cop, putting all these cops on the street, building all these prisons and arresting lots and lots of black people. And the media covers it because it's sensational and it's it just it's the whole zeitgeist of the 1980s is like arresting black people and suddenly the media is flooded with images instead of the Panthers and civil rights marches and the things that people used to see in the media um, it's suddenly you know criminals 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 crime drugs crime drugs you get shows like cops and, and it's it's a reflection of what's what the underlying thing is the ruling class economic offensive on the working class and then everything that, that went along with that, which is the scapegoating and the attack and the racism, building prison, all these big material things underneath that. And the media was a part of that package and a reflection of that. Um, but it's partly, it's not the architect of it. It didn't start with the media deciding to just portray all black people's criminals. You know what I mean? And it, it won't end because the media decides yeah, it'll end because new social movements like Republic create new images that are forced to have to, you know, cover, and people want to see that stuff. And it'll be, it'll change because of it's always about really what's going on outside of the media in terms of the class struggle and class balance of forces that gets reflected in the media. The media's kind of like a mirror on that. Um, Okay, um, I have the men in the back again, and most people have spoken. Have most people who have spoken have spoken twice already. So, if you haven't spoken yet, you know we'd love to hear from you. So, um, I just your idea of distraction reminded me of hearing Michael Parenti speak once at a media reform conference. Yeah. He used the idea of weapons of mass distraction, <laughs> uh, and then the video news releases. Uh, government uses them as well as corporations and local. TV channels run them as news. They look like news. Uh, this is thousands of these uh, government offices as well as corporations have used this tactic. Um, and that this idea that you know I've been a media worker for uh, you know, 30 years, 
This movement of public access television, community media, the language of media production, I mean, it, it's the same capitalist system, mm -hmm. this uh, division of labor, the means of production, and access to the tools. There is a revolution in media happening right now. We're all witnessing that with the internet and the means of production in terms of our ability to tell this story, this film that is premiering, that is the rough cut. Very powerful stuff. So I'm very encouraged by you know that we have the ability of. I mean, I post this talk that we just heard within a half an hour, it can be distributed worldwide, right? And that's that's to me very amazing, and uh, that we have access to these tools. And so uh, telling these stories, uh, creating our own narratives, narratives that are more connected to the majority. I'm very encouraged by it. Uh, the, uh, trans in the 70s, there was a movement you know, uh, when cable came. It was called guerrilla television. Right? Mm -hmm. and, uh, that kind of had its, you know, had its peak, and it kind of petered out with the, you know, the institution of community television, public access became, you know, sort of the gatekeepers and didn't fulfill the mission. But now, for the internet. Do you have the man in the hat right there, in the blue shirt? Oh, yeah. uh, I'm Jose from uh, Washington, D.C. And I um, just want to thank Jason for a very interesting topic. Uh, and I wanted to share with you guys um, a very uh, my very quick journey in, in class and uh, my skewed perception of uh, it. Please forgive me if I start to ramble. But um, I was born in New York City, but as a baby was taken to Nicaragua to grow, to grow and live there, which is where my parents were from, or my mother at least. My father's from the Dominican Republic. And they were not ruling class, but they were um, privileged class. Uh, my father was a businessman. He would import things from the United States bring them to Nicaragua and sell them at a profit. And um, this uh, worked out very well for many, many years. Um, my family was, was quite comfortable. And um, it, a revolution happened in the 70s with the Sandinistas. And my parents were very anti that. So it was back to New York. So we came to New York where now my parents were not what they were at home. Now they were, by necessity, working class, immigrant class. My dad had uh, took a job as a typesetter. A lot of you guys are too young to remember what that is. But <laughs> the, uh, they used to actually take the letters, one tiny letter, and put them together to make a newspaper. And, uh, and my mom uh, became a janitor at the Daily News building, which was the little newspaper in New York. Um, and so, and that was it. And so that was our, our radical change in, in class. Uh, so we became working class people and that's what my family has been. That's what I am. I've, I've been a blue collar person uh, all my working life. Um, 
And uh, I think what this young lady said here was, was so on about the powers that be in this capitalist system don't want to give you enough time to think about other things and other ways of living because you're just too damn tired because you work so hard. And, um, and that's it. I just want to share that. I have an open speaker's list. Go ahead. Uh, can I just ask then, um, if, if there's like a revolution in media that um, is you know, opening up the discussion, theoretically you would think that uh, people would tend to move towards the interests that actually benefit them. However, isn't it true that like uh, fascist sort of ideology and uh, racist ideologies on the rise as a person. I, I just, and so then I'm curious as to how that, how, how is this, it seems counterintuitive, but I'm wondering how that's propagated. I guess uh, I'll have Lychee and then uh, Jason will come back and wrap up and then we'll, I, or I'll take the last round of hands after Lychee and then if no one else has anything else to say then we'll just uh, come back to Jason if that's okay. Okay. Yeah, I guess I just also wanted to say something about um, 
you know, people identifying as working class because um, I feel like it's um, particularly blurry in this country. I think people have sort of a caricature of what it means to be working class, um, and it's usually, you know, white man, you know, holding a wrench, working in some kind of a factory. Um, and outside of that, you know, if you work in an office or something mm -hmm. like that, then you're not working class. Um, and, you know, uh, we actually have something different to say about that. And again, it gets back to what Jason was talking about, um, that really, for Marxists, it's about your relationship to production here. I think how we put it is your objective relationship to production, and what exactly does that mean? What are the, what are the materials that you need to produce something? Well, um, if you're growing food, you need land. Um, and you need the machinery, et cetera. If you um, are making microchips or whatever, you need to buy an office building, and you need desks, and you need computers, and all that kind of stuff. Well, who owns those things? You know, some big wig who uh, you know does very little work but has a lot of money is able to purchase that stuff. And then there's people who work on that land and work on that machinery, or in those office buildings, talk on the phone, selling stuff to people. Those. People don't actually own the phones that they are talking into, or, or own the computers that they're that they're you know selling stuff through, or whatever the case may be. Um, and I think it's an important point because, um, especially nowadays, where you actually have, um, and, and Jason alluded to this as well, more sort of workers in you know what's called the service sector. Uh, and, and some people have made the argument that that makes people sort of less likely um, to want to fight back because they're not you know sweating out in the fields. Um, and again, um, some of the stuff that Jason said, it's like those people are still being exploited, um, are making um, more for their companies or whatever than they are actually um, getting back. Um, they make actually a fraction um, of what they are able to produce, the massive profits that they're able to um, produce for those companies. So all of those people still have a vested interest um, in getting rid of the system that exploits them. That's important. Um, I think thing to understand. I think a good example, it, uh, again, I was saying this to somebody earlier, is um, there's a really great article um, in a past ISR by Adam Turrell called as the US um, post-industrial, and he says, you know, um, people don't go to Walmart to buy a lawn, but to buy the idea of a lawnmower, they go to buy a lawnmower. Um, and there's people in Walmart who didn't build the lawnmower themselves, but Walmart could not function without those people behind that cash register or what have or that salesperson trying to sell you. So there's people at different points of production that play an important role, and that if they stop playing that role, could really screw the Waltons, right? Um, who, who own Walmart? And so I just think that that's you know an important thing. Um, to, to grasp and just, if I could say one quick thing, because Annie made me think of it too, um, you know, of course, they have to use racism, um, and that's the strongest rule, uh, um, weapon that they use to keep us divided. Of course, there's sexism and homophobia and nationalism and all that stuff too, but in the United States in particular, and what she was talking about with the media backlash in the 1980s, that was a response really because before that, what did you have? You had a civil rights movement that, that was a multiracial movement that was actually, again, saying something different about what was wrong with this country, that it wasn't black people's fault that they couldn't get a job um, and that they were treated violently by police, but there was something wrong with that society itself was racist and you had somebody that was actually, you know, a whole, an organized movement of people that were presenting that challenge. Um, and that actually sort of shook the foundations of power in this country to a degree that, you know, we certainly haven't seen since and I hope to live to see again. Yeah. Um, but, uh, you know, you can, uh, that they 
use the media then as a response to that. But, but again, just I don't want to get all mixed up, but the media can go back and forth because um, during the Vietnam War, which is around that same time, um, they were showing images of people fighting back. They, they, the media itself, they always talk about that famously, how it turned against the war at some point, etc. So just to understand um, that these tools can also be malleable, and it has everything to do with the kind of organizing that we do, and what kind of movements, um, and what kind of visibility, and what kind of alternative we're able to offer um, 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 to other workers. Okay, uh, Elizabeth? Oh, yeah, just like something about um, the right, the right, right, the right, mm -hmm. all that. Class matters. Why class matters. I think most people actually right now see that class matters a bunch. <laughs> and are thinking yeah. about like how do we get together as working class people? I, mean, I understand we're a class person and I don't I don't know, but how do we, you know, come together and build solidarity and actually um, uh, move things? And I think that, you know, that's the kind that we're looking for. Also just quick on the media and I'm sorry to keep talking about it. You know what newspapers used to be different. There used to be sides in newspapers actually. The whole idea of the unbiased newspaper, mm -hmm. you just sort of, like Fox News always talks about fair and unbalanced, or like off balance, or whatever they are. It's not always been the case. There have been, you know, you know, there would be Republican and Democrat papers. There would be pro-slavery papers versus, you know, there are abolitionist papers. And these are not, not just, because there also were quote-unquote alternative media, like hundreds and hundreds of socialist newspapers during the, the uh, last uh, 18, the 1800s, but there are also defined sides in debates being made. And it was later that they sort of put this 
kind of caught on this idea that they, they serve up the news as if there's no opinion in it. And I think that maybe we're coming back to that again, where there are sides and opinions. The internet is a big example of that, where there are there are more opinions out there being, being crystallized and available to people that weren't before. But, Okay, and um, I'll have Jason come back, and then after that, you guys are free to go on dinner break. So <laughs> you're free to go now. I just yeah. prefer if you didn't. <laughs> uh, the um, the internet's an example of kind of how things can get away from capitalists in ways they don't necessarily expect. Uh, it started as a emergency war, as, as a system for ensuring communication during nuclear war with Russia. Uh, it then became, in the early 90s, a system for distributing pornography and selling cat toys. Um, it then, at the same time, it's, it is still those things, uh, but it's also turned out to be a tool that's useful for us in the same way that the printed word was a great tool for distributing the you know horrible ideas of the ruling class at that time, and it also turns out that printing presses can be used by our side. Um, I think there's tools that get created um, and in a class society, the way those tools get used have a lot to do with the people uh, in whose hands they are and, who, and the interests that those people have. And uh, I'd say a short word in defense of TV uh, in, in our society, because the fact is, at the end of the day, uh, you know, you get the kids, I, in my case, I get the kids down for sleep, uh, clean up the kitchen or whatever. I'm just exhausted. I don't like 30 minutes of TV is what I want to watch sometimes. Now there is an exception to that, which is if I have gone to a demonstration that day, I will get home and I will have a level of energy that uh, is surprising given that I've been marching around and shouting. Um, and I'll, I'll be much more stimulated. I'll be much more interested instead of just kind of trying to veg out. I want to read, uh, you know, some history, read something. Um, and then there's a different, the difference there is that when you take part in activity, particularly collective activity, when you feel that sense of solidarity, that sense of collective power that we have, uh, the only real power that we have, uh, that, that's a transforming thing and it can, in, you know, there's just little tastes of it uh, that we've had and I want to come back, I'll come back to that uh, in a second. Um, uh, the, one of the things to say about that though is I have yet to go on a demonstration and come home and turn on the TV, the news on the TV and see that demonstration reported accurately. It's a stunning, anybody, like that, that is the single easiest way to get your head around uh, the way the news is produced. And that is not necessarily a reflection on the individual journalists. It's a reflection on the fact that these are, as you said, they're capitalist entities. These are corporations. They're run for profit. Uh, the fact that they happen to have consolidated has certainly diminished the range of views, but it's always been the case that they've been run for profit. And the people that end up as editors that rise up through the ranks, they they reflect the priorities of those that own those the media. It's not there doesn't even have to be a conspiracy. There doesn't have to be that a meeting where they all sit down. They do have story meetings, but they don't have to have meetings where they sit down and set out a line. It's just kind of in the DNA of the of, of the situation. DNA makes it sound like it's genetically predetermined. Uh, it's in the just the, the, the nature of the beast. Um, but the import, I think the the thing here to, to take away is that what the media shows, although they have a lot of power, it is ultimately secondary to what people's lived experiences and that that is the only reason there's ever been any struggle i mean the the, the tools of of uh ideology that the ruling class has at their disposal uh on, on their face seem completely daunting 
The reason that you have struggle is because it doesn't matter how many times you're told that there's an American dream. It doesn't matter how many times you're told if you work harder, you can get ahead. Once you're working three part-time jobs, you're one paycheck away from bankruptcy, and you know you can't work any harder, you start to realize, and then, you see that your neighbors are doing that, you see people across the street getting foreclosed on that you know work hard, you start to say to yourself, there's something else going on here, something larger is messed up. And, and, and it's in that possibility that, uh, that there's, the, there's the possibility for change. There's the possibility for a fascist to come along and say, the answer is, um, you know, it's, it's black people, it's immigrants, it's, it's, what, it's gays, it's what, what have you. Um, and, you know, I don't think it's just that those are simplistic answers, it's that they're answers that they're, that they're giving uh, that also don't happen to challenge the society as a whole. Because our answer to what's going on is pretty simplistic as well. It's the ruling class. Like, you know, that's it. It's the fact that there's capitalism. You want to know why you're, you're getting kicked out of your house while bankers are getting billions of dollars? It's because the system is set up for the bankers. Like, that's, that's not a complex thought, and that, and that can connect with people. But the difference is that uh, our idea challenges the whole system. Uh, and and it, uh, it also involves, what we say needs to happen is that workers have to take control of society in their own interest and run it in their own interest. That's non-trivial. That takes some effort. That takes some power and it can fe sometimes feel remote, um, especially when there isn't a huge level of struggle. If you think back to uh, the election night um, and, and, in, and in the days following, the election day I should say, and in the few days following that, um, there was a taste, despite the fact that at the end of the day what happened was a new president was elected um, who was going on to enact a set of policies that are quite different from what the people, most of the people voted for him wanted to see. Um, there was a sense of, oh my God, like we, we've done something here. Something has changed. There is the possibility uh, for real change. And so, uh, and that was reflected immediately in the streets because not only was Obama elected, gay marriage was outlawed in, in California. Um, and Obama's against gay marriage, and yet you had massive demonstrations by the same people that voted for him, who, were, who had new confidence, who had new hope. Um, and that's the difference. Fascists prey on despair, despair and uh, desperation. Um, but if you combine desperation and hope, you get struggle. You get a sense of what's possible and that there can be real change. And the fact is people who uh, are in this room or at this conference, we need to be involved in all of those struggles. We need to learn from those struggles. We need to take part in them and get that, get, also have our ideas change and struggle, have our sense of, of what's possible change and struggle, as well as be talking to the people that are engaged in those uh, about broader ideas, about how individual struggles are connected to a broader problem and how that what we ultimately need to uh, do is emancipate the entire working class and that that's gonna take us as the working class making that happen. So that's what the point of this weekend is, um, and uh, thanks for everybody for coming. The preceding program was a production of WeAreMany.org, a website dedicated to publishing radical and activist media that promotes a better understanding of today's world while also putting forward a vision for a better future. We Are Many is a project of the Center for Economic Research and Social Change. To learn more about this program or to find others like it, check out wearemany.org.